Outside the box. Hi, and welcome to October's Outside the Box. It is me and Mick. Hi. And we will be talking about many things. A huge chunk of it is on Netflix. The news out of Netflix in the last couple of days is that Glow has been cancelled. I can't believe you're kicking off by making me furious. Yeah. What's your primary feeling about it? I'm sad. It's such a great show and it is so women championing with some incredible acting, some brilliant performances from Betty Gilpin, from Alison Brie and for like the whole cast of others. Great. And it just feels really sad that they don't get their finale because it was going to be the last season anyway. Yeah, agreed. The one upside, I think, is in my experience, things that have been cancelled that I have loved that have been cancelled Sometimes during me watching them, which is what happened to Deadwood and also what happened to Pulling or some things that I discovered after they'd been cancelled. But then I insisted on watching them and then went, oh, no, why is there not more of it? Even though I knew. We're looking at you, Carnival. Exactly. Carnival and also Freaks and Geeks. For the most part, the only good news I can see of those is that most of the people who are in them then go on to do excellent stuff. So I think we will see those women in other stuff. Gail Rankin is already kind of making a name for herself. She was in Perry Mason, which is, is that good. Sheila the She-Wolf. That is Sheila the She-Wolf. Obviously, Betty Gilpin is a damn sight more famous than she was. But yeah, I'm pissed off. But I actually have thoughts about it. In that, I think that Netflix is up to something. And by that, I mean, over the lockdown period, Netflix viewing figures have gone through the roof. But I've noticed that a couple of things have happened over lockdown. It's got a lot more into reality television than it had before. It's just like selling Sunset and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. The Floor is Lava, which is a reality show. It picked up Queer Eye for the Straight Guy, didn't it? Reality TV is a lot fucking cheaper to make. A lot cheaper to make than obviously something like Glow would be. Documentaries about true crime, which it does crap loads of are really easy and cheap no let's not say easy to make cheap to make in comparison to you know certainly in comparison to something like the crown so i think that given what we know about the collapse of the cinemas system that's not a right word but you know cinemas certainly cineworld is which we'll be talking about in bt i wonder whether netflix is freeing up a lot of capital in order to try and become a major film studio that can reach its own audience and that it envisaged that cinema is going to be no longer something you go out for, but something you stay in for. That's just a theory I have off the top of my head of why it would suddenly start dumping. Because it also cut uh, Bojack Horseman short. Bojack Horseman wasn't finished in the manner it should have been finished. It was it was given like one more season basically to get itself all wrapped up. Mindhunter, which I was repeatedly chastised for describing as cancelled yesterday on Twitter, isn't strictly cancelled, but it appears to be on some form of hiatus. It did take ages to get the second season of that out, though, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, it feels on the back of the announcement about Glow that it's highly likely that that's not going to come back as well if they're like, oh, we're just putting this on pause. Are you Netflix? Are yeah. you? 
And they have made more Netflix films. I watched Enola Holmes, which is uh, Millie Bobby Brown in a sort of Sherlock Holmes story, basically. And, yeah, that's a Netflix original film, and they are doing more films. So I think your theory holds water, mate. Yeah, which is just sad for decent drama, because that's what Netflix made its name off the back of, really, in truth. I mean, if you look back at sort of, I mean, this, it's maybe 10 years, isn't it? It's not much longer than that, that Netflix has been in any way a player. But things like Orange is the New Black. And, yeah. You know, regularly discussed, but actually praised in terms of telling women's stories, to having intersectional casts. It just yeah. seems a shame that that's the place that you went to for those sort of dramas or comedies case of Bojack Horseman although that really slid out of the section of comedy and into the section of drama somewhere around the fifth series but but yeah. it's heartbreaking that maybe they're not going to make stuff like that because Bojack Horseman was like groundbreaking yeah absolutely so I'm yeah I, 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 it's sad but anyway let's go on to what we're actually talking about a huge amount of which is actually Netflix so I thought we do in our first half we talk about a series of different documentaries that we've seen on Netflix and then second half we will talk about everything else and everything else is largely Ghosts and Deaths which was ITV so I'm going to start by telling you sort of a little brief bit about a couple of documentaries I've watched and then Mickey is going to talk you through the social dilemma a documentary that has terrified both of us <laughs> okay I'm just going to start briefly with American Murder The Family Next Door which true crime series you know what Netflix is now specializing in we're not helping Hannah we're just adding to the algorithm well I would just like to say that I read on the intro that this tells the story of Shanann Watts and her two children who disappeared from their house never to be seen again and I decided to attempt to predict what had happened based on my knowledge of the world and then read up on it and of course I was absolutely correct it was her husband who did it because he wanted to get rid of them and start a new life because that's what always happens so I would suggest that if you already know that maybe you don't need to give Netflix the idea that true crime things are worth watching but if you don't know that and you went into it going wow I wonder who did it maybe you do need to watch this because the reminder is it's always the fucking husband (laughs) always the fucking husband second documentary to talk about briefly or maybe not so briefly is challenger the final flight which is a four-part documentary by bad robot which is jj abrams company which tells the story of the 1986 challenger disaster the challenger blew up just after takeoff killing all seven people on board including school teacher krista mccauliffe who was being sent to space to teach a lesson to all of america's children from space I had watched a documentary Channel 4 did about 10 years ago about the Challenger, so I knew why it blew up. I knew it was the O-Rings what did it. Not Um, the husband. (laughs) Yeah, it was the husband of the (laughs) O-Ring. But nonetheless, this has a lot more to offer than pure science. It has all of the, what I would describe as the major necessary players on board to talk about this sort of thing. The wives, the sisters, the family, the children of a number of the... In fact, almost all of the people who were killed in the Challenger disaster, there is a family member representing them in it. There's a lot of people who were in the NASA control room when it happened. It has a lot of people who were involved in the supply chain of it. 
so it's good from that point of view it's it's more i would say it's more on a human level than the one that i watched which was very on a sciencey based level of you know what actually went wrong and it asked the bigger question of not went wrong that morning but what went wrong further down the line mm. that made that possible that that could go wrong quite harsh on nasa as well it should be because the challenge of disaster is one of those things i mean talking about glow the challenge of disaster was what ruth was narrating when oh of course i was like what's the link but of course yeah when it blew up which she was narrating on television and i think maybe if you watch that episode you thought What's Ruth making such a fucking drama about this? This is so Ruth. Do you know what I mean? When she kept saying, I think we should have a minute of silence. And everyone was like, shut up and let us get on with it. But actually, I think it's something that we don't quite understand in this country is what the Challenger disaster meant in America. And it's one of a number of like key significant events in American history that really shocked America to its core. It's one of the few events in history where America's been sort of made to feel vulnerable and therefore it started to question its place in the world or its stated missions much like when crazy horse took out custer and all his men at the little big horn or you know much like the bombing of pearl harbor or indeed september the 11th events where americans have felt very very secure in their place in the world or very secure in their mission in their i'd even go as far to say their god sanctioned mission Mm. and what this documentary has to do is to try and establish that to people perhaps who are too young to remember it or who aren't American and don't quite get it. And much as we, I could talk about this for ages, I'm not going to, but what I will say is much as we mock a montage, how this, I love a montage. How this film communicates this, the importance of space travel to the American psyche is with a montage of basically America completely losing its shit when the first space shuttle, Columbia, made its successful return in 1981. A series of just crowds going wild. There's famous faces in there. Steven Spielberg's in there going wild. There's the pilots coming off of the top of it going wild. All of which is set to Neil Diamond's America. And it really does sum up that sort of spirit. And it achieves, it's marvellous. That's probably one of the best opening montages I've seen in anything that makes you go, oh, wow, space, whoa, like that, that you wouldn't (laughs) ordinarily. So I want to commend it for that. I want to commend it for remembering what the point of a montage is. So, yeah, watch it if you... Uh, there's four parts of it. I actually could have watched Oh, more. I was just about to say, is it a, it's a four-part and it's, not just a one-off. It's a four-part and I actually could have watched more of it. I think there are so many little interesting tales in there. There's, like, the family's stories. There's the backstories of the people that were on it. Periodically, it will throw a famous face in. Richard Feynman, do you know who Richard Feynman is? No. He's probably the world's most famous physicist. He's, he's dead now, but he was a Fields medalist and a Nobel Prize winning physicist. And the role he played in basically getting NASA to admit that they fucked up, along with Sally Ride, who's like the first woman in, first American woman in space. May I ask a question on the back of the Challenger documentary? Because I think when I've read around it a little bit and I really want to watch that documentary, just haven't got around to it yet, it feels like it was seen as now it's been uncovered an advancement of science that was worth the risk and obviously the risk cost seven people their lives it does is that something that comes across in the documentary one of the the most interesting people in it is when krista mccauliffe was picked reagan said let's have a teacher 
you know, teachers are amazing. Let's send a teacher to space. And teachers from all over the country were encouraged to apply, and they did. And Krista McAuliffe was picked. can't remember the name of her now, but there was a woman who was picked as the backup in case something happened in the interim training period that Krista McAuliffe could, wouldn't go. So she went through the whole amount of training as if she would go to space, just in case. Right. She was like the understudy, mm-hmm. essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and she's interviewed in all of that. And she says there was a point in which the pilot, which is actually a technical space term, obviously, the pilot, I mean that genuinely, it's not that I can't think of the word. The pilot had taken her and Krista McAuliffe aside and said, I don't know that you've realised how dangerous this is. This is really right. da- This is really dangerous. Because NASA was putting out an image to not just them, but to the whole country, that this was basically like getting on an aeroplane. This was Mm -hmm. no more dangerous than getting on an aeroplane. So, yeah, while the astronauts may have been prepared to accept the risk that they may die, because it was part of a greater internal desire to get to space, etc., etc., whether or not the public were ever warned that the risk of that was... As as high as it was is 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 questionable. So yeah, it's interesting from that point of view. Yeah, that is really interesting. Third, really interesting documentary that um, just briefly that Netflix has dropped is a perfect crime, which again sounds like a true crime thing, which might make you skip over it. Uh, that would be a mistake because it's actually not about. It's not. It is a true crime thing, but it's way more than that. It is about the assassination of Detlev Rowedder in 1991 in Berlin, who was the West German politician who was tasked with denationalising East German industry after the fall of the Berlin Wall. That sounds like a fun job. He was assassinated through a window at his house. Credit was taken by the Red Army faction. Although no individual has ever been isolated as the person or, you know, people involved in his killing. The narrative that this was done by the Red Army faction, which is essentially a third wave of the Red Army faction, who were a group, you might suggest, a bit like, you know, Antifa. They operate in cells rather than as a, as a mass organisation. But as time has gone on, lots of people have questioned this narrative because qui bono, who benefits I mean, the Germans probably actually have their own word for that, don't they? The person who benefits through the assassination of someone and pretending it was somebody else. It's probably longer than that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it's interesting from that point of view. But actually what the true interesting thing is that is that it's a really forensic look at the period immediately after the fall of the Berlin Wall. I have no idea why you found this interesting, Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, my parents had some friends who lived in Germany. Obviously, in the West, we didn't know any East Germans, but they had some German friends who were in Essen. So I did hear stuff, but it was entirely from a Western perspective. So their major perspective was that it was costing them a fucking fortune. Reunification tax, and that went on for a very long time. And although, like, certain sort of, A, common sense, and B, things like Goodbye Lenin, have reminded you that not everybody in the East was well happy by this development. A lot of people in the East either lost, entirely lost, what is my life now? The culture shock of being like, oh, we're not part of that anymore, we're now part of this, are we? Because it happened so quickly. The unravelling happened quickly, and then the reunification happened so quickly that people were really lost. But there were also people who'd given their entire life to the cause of communism and they didn't really know what to do with themselves. Yeah. So it's it's really interesting 
from that point of view, the question of whether reunification was rushed and also the question, and this is something you and I talk about or we've talked about a lot, particularly when we're talking about the question of race and racism and racists. What do you do with people who refuse to conform? What do you do with them? Where do you go? What do you do? I mean, we can't kill them, can we? So how do you win people over? The people who'd been in the Stasi, for example, who hadn't done anything wrong in terms of law, but who arguably had done all sorts of things in terms of morals. Yeah. How they were going to refit back into society, this new society, and where they were going to go and what their fate was going to be is really interesting. That wasn't... I can't say it was directly addressed as a question in this. And in a lot of ways, this period reminds me of what happened during Reconstruction in America after the Civil War. Apart from the fact that there hadn't been a war and apart from the fact that there wasn't slaves. But the basic idea that one side was wealthy and the other side had been ruined presents huge opportunities for people on the other side. Yeah. And therefore, what you witnessed was a shitload of carpetbagging. You witnessed West German business people basically flying in to see what they could buy up, to see what property they could buy up, to see what Mm -hmm. they could get on the cheap, which is always going to cause tensions and frustrations. And when you look at all of that, you think, I wonder that guy wasn't shot sooner. There wasn't a war, but as somebody in this says quite clearly, if anybody won, if anybody was a winner in this, it was the East. In as much as they'd beaten communism. But yet they came out of it and felt defeated because they were immediately almost preyed upon by people who were like, how can I make money out of you? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's fascinating. A perfect crime. I think it's four parts. I don't think they're an hour long each. I think some of them are about 40 minutes. One might even just be half an hour. But they are definitely interesting. So well worth watching. I've been talking for ages. You tell us about the other documentary we've been watching on Netflix. So we watched, along with a whole swathe of society, The Social Dilemma on Netflix and by Netflix, which describes itself as a documentary drama hybrid, a docudrama, if you will. But I'd recommend mostly ignoring the drama bit and focusing on what is an excellent documentary, because that slice of Jeff Alowski's The Social Dilemma is a compelling account of what a handful of companies, talking Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google, Pinterest, are doing to us as individuals and society as a more and more divided whole. Okay, so the message social media is actually pretty nefarious isn't exactly revelatory, but it is a reminder that the reason you might have checked your phone a few times during a documentary about how social media manipulates you to be constantly at its beck and call is because social media is, well, you know, actually pretty nefarious. I'm going to get my bugbear about this film out of the way. The dramatised narrative is a distraction, or it was for me, even though it's got Vincent Carthesa in it. We follow a kid called Ben, played by Skylar Gazondo, who's supposed to be somewhere between 15 and, I don't know, 45, judging by his hairline. He's getting radicalised by social media, and it happens at fairly breakneck speed, which, if you've listened to our interview with the excellent Laura Bates, you know is a thing. It it happens. And it's all well enough done, but I, I just didn't feel like it needed it. The pretend bit massively detracted from the truth bombs being dropped from people within the industry, who have that insider knowledge. And at its best, on the documentary side, the social dilemma will, or at least should, scare the living shit out of you. 
So Orlowski has assembled a squad of Silicon Valley tech bros to talk openly about how we've all been manipulated, moulded, radicalised and sold in exchange for the dopamine hit we get when Julie from Accounts does a crylap emoji on our funny cat photo. <laughs> they do look pretty guilty about it now, like, but still. Lead tech bro is Tristan Harris, a former Google employee. No way, actually. Design ethicist. Yeah. He quickly discovered the lie in that job title and is now blowing his whistle all over the shop, which I'm going to say to you is actually pretty damn sexy. Um, something something sexy about a whistleblower, Hannah. Um, no? I didn't know Edward Snowden, not so much. I think he started out quite sexy and then just got overexposed. Anyway, Harris, he seems genuinely passionate about change and has co-founded the Centre for Humane Technology. He knows we're not likely to give up our smartphones. I mean, it's pretty obvious that's not going to happen. But he'd like to make them less, well, fucking evil, I suppose. So he's doing that. He's also a magician, but I still liked him. Who knew? So the tech involved with making us want more and more is undoubtedly clever, but the problem, and I think the social dilemma really reveals this, lies in it not being clever enough. Because the AI knows what's popular, what's going to get you with more screen time, Mm. what's going to get you clicking and keep clicking, but it crucially cannot differentiate between truth and lies, which is fucking terrifying. So yeah, I think it's a really good watch. It did make me honk when they're all talking about how what these platforms want is your time. And this is a Netflix original. And Netflix's CEO quite famously said its biggest competitor was sleep. So, you know, it doesn't look likely to stop anytime soon. Agreed with all of that. I found it really unpleasant. And I don't mean that in the way it's not well made, but in the way that you just, especially coming so soon after us talking to Laura Bates. Yeah. It just feels, it feels really hopeless because basically, much like most of the world's problems... Genuinely, most of the world's problems could be solved if we all acted together on it. If we all said, "Okay, well, we're all going to stop shopping there or we're all going to stop polluting or we're all we're all going to put a fucking mask on. (laughs) You know, loads of the world's problems could actually be solved by the fact that, you know, we just need to say no. If we all left Facebook tomorrow, Facebook would not be a thing. It's, (laughs) It's quite easily fixed. But because there is fresh meat every day for it not necessarily for facebook because young people don't use facebook so much but for some other app but they use instagram which is owned by facebook or some other exactly or they're using whatsapp or whatever it is they're using what's the point of striking if you can always bring in strike breakers that are like 13 and don't know anything about the world and are suddenly on on a platform it's most frustrating thing is that the answer is in our hands but for some people this is a genuine addiction the dopamine is being released. All of this stuff is all very cleverly plotted. What I found quite striking is the idea that they they inserted person is typing because then you knew you were going to get a response yes. immediately. And so you just hang so you out just and wait. wait for it. Stuff like that is really, you know, that is pressing buttons inside us and so sinister, really, when you think what the end game is. It's not for our... our benefit it's not to improve our user experience it's just to keep us there it's surveillance capitalism it's, isn't it's, it? i think you it's, it's like a casino almost when they take their clocks off the wall croupiers aren't allowed to wear watches they want to keep you there for as long as possible and if you have a reminder of how long you've been there then you're going to go oh fuck i've been on here for two hours i've got other shit to do 
Yeah, turn off your notifications, people. That is the the small thing that everyone can do. Turn off your notifications because I think you're right. It it did feel a pretty hopeless. There was no positive. Well, this is how we can change it. When when asked how can it change, all of the tech bros they interviewed just had this kind of I don't know, I don't know. We've 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 let the genie out of the bottle, and it's not Robin mm. Williams and Aladdin. It's this horrific dominating gonna suck the soul out of Eugenie and we cannot get it back in the bottle now it was so telling that none of them allow their kids on social media militant about not allowing any of their kids on social media the people who invented it Uh, but then if you look at the last six months and you look at parents who've been working from home full-time and had their kids to look after You know, how the fuck are you supposed to stop Mm. your kids going online? Apart from not buying them the stuff in the first place. But Jesus, I bet a lot of social media accounts were opened and a lot of iPhones were given because you just need to give your kids something to do. Or you certainly have in the last six months. Absolutely. It's so difficult. The bit, the the one bit of the drama that I thought was, was particularly good is the little girl who's supposed to be 11 yeah. and her addiction to the phone. And I actually thought that was that was really sad. Although completely unbelievable that when she smashed up her parents' shit to get her phone, she was later seen that night on her phone again. There's no way you'd have, I'd have been able to keep that phone. <laughs> you'd have been banned from it for a month. It'd have been confiscated. But, you know, I think that was really sad that how one mean comment influenced the way she felt about herself so quickly. And when kids of that age are so vulnerable and that is happening yeah where do we go from there it doesn't seem like we can go up but i suppose the fact that this exists there are things that we can do so like i say it's not revelatory it's not it's not groundbreaking we kind of know this information but it is it's much more comfortable to not think about it and it makes you think about it yeah absolutely okay let's take a break and then we'll come back we'll talk about ghosts we'll talk about des hooray Welcome back to Outside the Box. Just at the top, a couple of things. I watched a couple of episodes of something called Away, which is also on Netflix, which is a drama about a manned mission to Mars starring Hilary Swank. And I think the tagline should be crying in space. (laughs) I've never known anything about space to be so full of the minutiae of domestic dramas. And I just, no. Secondly, there's something called The Third Date, which is on Sky, which stars Jude Law, Emily Mortimer, Naomi Harris. Kit Duvall was involved in the writing in it. The last three names in that, great. Jude Law, there's something about him. I just can't watch him. That has been partially putting me off from watching it. I'm going to try and watch it because there's, the second part is like in some sort of 12-hour like live experience no i don't know what that means either and i'm not quite sure that's what i want from a telly no i don't think i want that from my tv i'm all for innovation but i'm also also for staying in my couch just on my couch yeah Yeah. i always seem to fuck those things up anyway when bandersnatch (laughs) like came out everybody else was like oh that was like the best hour and whatever of telly i've ever watched and i'm like mine was 20 minutes long and it was shit so (laughs) you're like you're like me in those choose your own adventure books we used to have as a kid and i'd always die in a cave in a cave on page three or something i'm like oh i've died very quickly absolutely that i just make the wrong choices even in television viewing okay shall we start (laughs) shall we start with ghosts because i know mickey that you haven't watched ghosts so i'm sorry i want to it's gonna happen it's gonna happen well i thought i would present this directly to you as the reasons you should watch ghosts uh, i'm listening already so season two of bbc's superlative sitcom 
is now on the iPlayer or you can watch it on the television one episode at a time for the people who maybe are able to put their, their phones <laughs> in, in a bucket and not touch them. The if you are us... doing that, can you get in touch and tell us how willpower works, <laughs> how please? you're achieving it. <laughs> okay, created by and starring the cast of Horrible Histories. So that's Simon Farnaby, Jim Howitt, Matthew Bainton, Martha Douglas Howe, Lawrence Rickard and Ben Willabond as ghosts that haunt a house. They are joined in the characters of ghosts by two absolutely cracking actresses, Lolly Adafope and Katie Wicks, who was on our, who will be on our upcoming gig cast. And she was absolutely lovely. You can tell what a talented bunch all these people are because they actually play more than one character. In fact, Lawrence Rickard plays three. And they make the most excellent, more use and the most excellent use of what I can only describe as the chorus, which are the ghosts that all died of the plague that live in the cellar, who previously had largely been used uh, just as experts on the house's heating system, but now actually have (laughs) a bit more to do and are absolutely lovely. Um, So it's set in Button House, a young couple played by Charlotte Ritchie and Keel Smith-Bino, inherit the house from a really far off line of the family tree it's not they're not a wealthy couple but they end up owning this mansion and are now in the swing of living with this series of ghosts i absolutely adore ghosts it's it's so it's got so much warmth and it feels familiar in a way that it shouldn't for something that is new if that makes sense when i Mm -hmm. watch it even if i haven't seen it before it it's got that sort of warmth and familiarity with it. I think that's partly because, you know, of the, their familiarity from Horrible Histories. But also it owes something to Blackadder, definitely, in the sort of the wordplay, putting old sentences in, in a modern context, which is funny. It's a great bit in this where Simon Farnaby's character is singing. I don't know what's what, what it's called. That song, I'll Make Love to You If You Want Me To, that one. What is that? I'll make love That's to it. you if you... Yeah. So, oh, I don't know. Whoever Why that do I is. Know that? Anyway, he's singing that song. And when it gets to the end, Katie Wicks's character, Mary, who was burnt at the stake, just says, I don't want him to... <laughs> it's really fucking <laughs> funny. But actually, it owes, I think, a lot more to Python. I think that's where its inspiration comes from. You know, the fact that they're all playing multiple characters, the fact that it's drenched in history... The fact that actually the starting position of a lot of his characters is indignance. That sort of fun angry that is throughout Python. A lot of its characters are like that as well. Jokes come from the culture clash. Great example of this, and this actually harks to something we were literally just talking about, is uh, Moon enthusiast and totally MVP Robin, who is a caveman who has been haunting this site for, well, for almost all eternity finds out that they actually that man has been on the moon and is left in front of a youtube video explaining it to him for too long and it rolls on and he then becomes oh no. radi- and then he then becomes rad- radicalized as a conspiracy theorist mary's got a really sort of childlike innocent pat who is a, a scoutmaster who was shot through the neck with an arrow really enthusiastic about absolutely everything but there's also like a lot of lingering sadness in it the captain who was killed during the second world war is obviously to all viewers repressing his sexuality which is quite sad you know the oh. idea that eventually nobody comes back to mark your death is sad so that that underpins it i absolutely love it i genuinely think I don't know what you're fucking playing at not watching it. 
it makes me laugh. So like, in fact, I've watched it twice and I wasn't going to admit to that, but I saw Hazel Davis say that she has also watched it twice since the second series went up. So I'm not alone. I feel like you're not even angry with me anymore, honey. You're just really disappointed. I am. I am. I okay. don't know. I will remedy it. I'll remedy it. I promise. I mean, it is one of, I think, one of the most successful new sitcoms that the BBC has made in years and years. And it's such a hard road to walk because they need to appeal to a lot of people in that slot. You know, teenagers might still be up. And there is jokes that will go over youngsters' heads and there are jokes that might go over old people's heads that they like that they haven't picked up either that might be about sort of new technology or stuff. One of the characters is called Fanny Button, which is so glorious because that's the other key to it. <laughs> it's silly. It's really silly. There's a character called Fanny Button and they do bring themselves in a lot, but they make a lot of jokes about the fact that she's called Fanny. There's a point at which somebody shouts, no more Fanny photos and stuff like that. <laughs> it's just, it's just funny. And also, I mean, Julian, who is Simon Farnaby has died in a sex act and therefore has no trousers on. <laughs> And that joke never, ever, ever gets stale. It's just consistently funny, the fact that Julian has no trousers on. I do love Simon Farnaby. He's amazing. Anyway, finally, have you watched anything or are we just going to go to Des? I've rewatched True Blood, mate, so let's skip on to Des. <laughs> oh, have you? I've watched three seasons of True Blood and now I know it starts to get ridiculously silly. I don't like the suckies of fairy business, so yeah, but I do like the werewolves. And Eric. Interestingly, I have just been reading, here's another plug, I've just been reading Unfollow. There'll be an interview with Megan Roper, who wrote it. That will be out in next Wednesday. week's podcast. I'm doing that this afternoon. She is the Westboro Baptist Church apostate. They are famous for carrying certain placards. I'm going to have to use what's on the placards in the in that podcast, but I don't need to use it now. But what I can say is one of the examples she uses of of how pervasive the Westboro Baptist Church was, was that in the credits of... Oh, God Hates Fangs. God Hates Fangs is in the credits of True Blood. Yeah. Yeah. In the title sequence, which Mm. is incredible. Okay, Des, ITV drama in three parts, then with a documentary that wrapped up the story at the end of it that was narrated by David Tennant. David Tennant in the who had played Dennis Nilsson in the drama series. So it's the story of the police investigation into what they found at the flat of formerly thought of as mild-mannered civil servant Dennis Nilsson, who had turned out to have killed a huge amount of gay and homeless men in London in the 1970s and 80s. What I'm going to say is possibly unfair because I thought what it was was good. And I would always say you should always review something for what it was rather than what it wasn't. But the potential of what it could have been did shout Mm -hmm. at me quite a lot during it. Great performance by Tennant. It reminded me quite a lot of Dominic West's performance of Fred West in that there was something about the delivery of lines. Very darkly funny. Exactly that, that actually made me laugh. Daniel May says to him, why did you do it? And David Tennant said, well, I was hoping you could tell me that. And it's it's funny. I don't think it should be funny, (laughs) but it kind of reminds me of that in the same way. 
thought Jason Watkins, who everyone will know I'm a massive fan of, I thought he was absolutely cracking as the guy that starts to write Nilsson's biography and actually went on to write the book that a lot of this drama was based on. Brian Masters, that's his name. Yeah, obviously Daniel Mace was really good as the copper investigating it all. I just think it opened with shots of Thatcher's Britain, of homelessness, of a sort of Section 28 world in which gay men were vilified and in which homeless people were uncared about. And with the exception of a couple of things said by the Jason Watkins' character, Brian Masters, who was himself a gay man. Really, the issue of what this tells us about the way that gay people were treated and the way that homeless people were treated isn't actually addressed in this or in the documentary, which I was slightly disappointed by. I think that Lisa Williams's documentary about the Yorkshire Ripper perhaps raised the bar in how we should try to contextualise what crimes mean about the society that they are allowed to happen in because in the case of the Yorkshire Ripper and Dennis Nilsson you could almost say that society let this happen. Your Mate, thoughts, I, Nick? I genuinely couldn't agree with you more when it started and it starts with a sort of montage of 1980s Thatcher's Britain I thought right it's going to talk about this and I was really disappointed that it didn't because I think that would have been a brilliant way of putting stuff into context and I was just left going well I think David Tennant was brilliant, Jason Watkins was brilliant, Daniel Mays was brilliant, Barry Ward as Daniel Mays's sort of sidekick was excellent. But I was a bit like, but why? Why have they made this? Yeah. But everything you just said, I don't really have anything more to add because you've articulated everything I thought about it as well. I mean, just to, to, to add on to that, Chanel Cresswell, who's probably best known from for her work with Shane Meadows in This Is England, absolutely great basically couple of scenes that she's in in which her ex-partner who had a lot of problems has vanished she's convinced that he's dead police had like palmed her off time and time again with like oh well men just fuck off don't they and she was like well yeah I mean he is a drug addict and a loser but he doesn't ring on his kid's birthday and he hasn't Mm -hmm. their elements I thought she was great so there were flashes but it didn't seem to to come together in a cohesive argument as why this happened perhaps they were trying to like literally say this is what happened in the 80s, perhaps I'm applying some 21st century idea to this. I guess what was refreshing as well, that is a point massively in its favour, is you quite often see serial killers as these brooding, I'm not helping the police, these kind of big, larger-than-life characters, whereas actually Des, Dennis Nielsen, is portrayed as very, very normal because that's how he sold himself. That's who he believed he was. And I think they do that very well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Tennant is great. And, and he, I, I've long said this. It's best Tennant. Tennant does way better playing shitheads yeah. than he does playing nice guys. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, that is the best Tennant. And yeah, it's always wrong to judge something on what it's not. So maybe with a bit of distance, I could go back and watch it again and say, oh, actually, it is good for, for what it is. But I think... And I think you could as well, because it is, it's incredibly watchable. Yeah, definitely. Have you anything else to add? Anything that you want to say? Anything you're looking forward to? Or should we just wrap this the hell up and just get on with our lives? I'm looking forward to watching Ghosts. Now wrap this the hell up. (laughs) (laughs) Outside the box.